Some of you, rightfully so, feel like we've been in the book of Matthew for a long time. We have. This is probably one of the longest series we've ever done. And we're in chapter 6, and we started in chapter 3. So I want to tell you where we're going. Let me tell you what we're doing in the next couple of weeks just so you catch up with us. Tonight, we're finishing off chapter 6. Then we're going back and finishing Matthew chapter 7 in the following two weeks before we stop and start a new series. And then come back to Matthew at a later point and do that maybe throughout the next year or so. Uh, just kind of intersperse going through Matthew because we've been doing it so intensely that some of you I know, are I can tell by your face, like, give me a break. Let's open up in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. Let me remind you what we did the last few weeks. We've covered Jesus in the end of chapter 5 saying, you've heard it said, and he went through all of these. Murder, where he was really highlighting anger as well. Adultery, which included lust. Divorce, oaths, retaliation, that we spent a good deal of time doing eye for eye. Is that still the standard? How he moves it forward. And then love for enemies. Last week, we looked at the word when. When. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast. And we talked about the idea that this was not a conditional thing. It was not maybe or if. It was when. Tonight, we're continuing part of his when you give because he starts talking about treasure in heaven. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. All right, starting in verse 19. Treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It doesn't sound like he's saying anything too controversial at the beginning. We've heard it so much, I think we've gotten numb to these words. So let me make sure we hear them right. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. I think most of us have heard that enough that we say, yeah, that's, that's right. Why? Let me ask why. Why shouldn't we store up treasures on earth? What's, what's the reason? What's wrong with that? They're temporary. How? As soon as we die, we won't have them. Okay. So we've got to leave them behind? How many agree with that principle? That we should not be storing up treasure on earth? Because they're temporary, right? Can't take it with you? We know the guy that has the he who dies with the most toys wins sticker is an idiot, right? We know that, right? At least up here we do. The question is, do we know it here? Jesus makes this statement. Because it can be destroyed by moth or rust, you have to remember that a lot of the wealth in the first century could be stored. It was stored wealth. So moth... Rust could destroy your wealth. And thieves could break in and steal your wealth. Right? It wasn't like you had a bank account where you could just put your wealth and hide it, stocks, bonds. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now, how do you do that? How do you store up for yourselves treasure in heaven? Is he talking about real treasure, by the way? Jesus, in numerous places, makes reference that there's some sort of reward waiting for those who follow and obey his commands. Yeah. Uh, the question is, is it just like treasure that's what God calls treasure? Or is it treasure like, oh man, if I had like a slurping machine in my house in heaven, that's like my treasure, you know? Or is it stuff that's like stuff that's 
that's for where my heart desires, you know, maybe oh, that'd be cool, you know. I don't it's a good question, and I don't know that I, that, I, that I have the strong support to answer it, because I'll tell you that, first of all, I don't know if we even could imagine what it is we're going to want when we're there, right? Okay. But the reason I point it out is because so many of us get this concept in our minds that we, we all agree we can't take anything with us. We all agree with that. We're good. But what none of us seem to look at in this is there's some sort of transaction going on. Don't store it here, store it there. There's actually a verb being used like store, like you commanded, store in heaven. Well, how would I do that? Like none of you could send it ahead of you, can you? I mean like ship at FedEx to get there while you're waiting, so just like take your stuff. So I don't think it means the stuff we have here. I think that's right. I think you're right. I don't think it means the stuff that is here. But he is giving us a strong indication that we should do something. It's an act. It's not like, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth and let's just wait for the next life and hope there's something there. He's actually telling us, store up treasure in heaven. So what could that treasure be? What do we have control over that could be that treasure in heaven? I'll give you a couple of them. I think we have, first of all, our own life in heaven. That's a treasure that we can receive. I think we can work to make sure that some of the people that we know are part of that treasure, maybe around us. I think most of the church agrees on that. I think the place where some people start to be a little bit surprised and need to look deeper at the text a little bit is, I think he's actually saying, there are things waiting for you in heaven because over and over Jesus seems to say, I'm going to reward those who do my commands. Does that bug anybody? We've talked about it a number of times in previous series. But this is the, we can't skip over the text without hitting it because it's right here in front of us. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. If it bugs you, yeah? Couldn't treasure be what? Like a ring in heaven. Just material things. I think we know that in heaven we probably will not be equal. And so it might not be material. It may be something else. Okay, it may be position. It may be glory. It may be something else. That might be true. That's a good point. Some of you should start to be troubled by the fact that Jesus seems to repeatedly talk about some sort of reward that comes later. And if you want to, afterwards we can talk about some of those verses because we've covered them elsewhere. Okay? We can go through some of them where he starts to say there seems to be some sort of reward for believers. And there even seems to be, Paul implies, a judgment for believers where they actually do present their works to Christ. And he is somehow passing on those works that they've done. Very difficult concept because we emphasize grace and salvation by grace alone so much that we sometimes forget there seems to be these other texts that we need to look at. So I'm just pointing that out. Leave it out there. You know, we leave some stuff hanging so we can talk about it afterwards. That's one of them. Let's look at the one that Jeremy was focusing on. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is very true for us, I think. I don't think many of us would dispute the wisdom of this one statement. I've spent time dealing with this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount with a group of business people that I meet with that that aren't Christians. And they're just fascinated by this line. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Because it shows us a real truth that if you want to see what somebody cares about, you look at what they spend their money on. And that will tell you what they really care about in life. Many of us in this room, if I asked you what the primary thing we care about is, some of us might be honest and say what it really is. Others of us might say that it has something to do with our faith. But if you really examine where does our treasure really lie, a lot of us are not 
sinking with this statement. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is our treasure right now? Where do you hold your treasure? Where is it? What do you own? What do you have? What do you want to own? What do you want to buy? Jesus is saying that's what you care about. Follow the money is the easiest way to translate that into our modern language. Follow the money. You care about something like maybe you say, well, I care a lot about the plight of children in other countries that don't have anything to eat. Really? Follow the money. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. If you came and evaluated my life, for example, and laid it open, and you saw what I spent my money on, how much I spent on what I go out to eat, what I spend on myself, spend on the clothing, somebody could say, it looks like that's what you care about. It's a hard word. You agree? Well, I mean, it's like you have these people on TV, like Oprah and stuff, and they'll give, you know, $50,000 to a charity, and they're like, oh, we're getting, we're giving $50,000 to a charity over in people in Africa or to people that need a house or whatever, but, you know, they're, they're not saved, you know, so it's like if they're giving money, does that mean that their heart is, you know, where it's supposed to be, or is it... Do you think that this applies only to people who are his disciples? I mean, do you think, in other words, the question I'm asking is, the wisdom of his words apply only to people who follow Jesus? I mean, I think this is universal. Like, for example, if you checked out Oprah, which you're using as an example, and Oprah gave $50,000 to a charity in South Africa, then I would say that if I said, I care about children in South Africa, I think that you could find out that Oprah cares more than I do. You know, that my heart really isn't there. Because if you said, well, how much do you actually give the children in South Africa? I go, uh, zero. Well, okay. You know, with money, it's like the widow with two mites. Like, that meant more to God than a $50,000 check that someone has, you know, a billion dollars in their bank account than someone that's got, dude, I got 10 bucks, you know, and I'll just give it all. And it's not going to make that big of a difference, you know, in the world standards. But if God looks at it and goes, you know what, that was your last 10 bucks, you know, and it didn't make that much of an impact on the world. But, you know, to me, that's what you gave up because that was, you know, your, your lunch money that you had for the rest of the week or whatever, you know, so... Okay, so it's not amounts. I think you're right. We're probably not going to look at amounts. But we are going to look at what it is compared to as a percentage of yourself, right? Like if I looked at all the money you made and I looked at what you spent your money on, would it be true? I think you would say these are the things that you care about, right? Anyone else say a different view? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It seems like what he's saying is, well, it's not just seems. He's saying it pretty clearly. Just follow the money. Time? Okay. But what's he talking about here? I mean, in our case, we can add time. We like to add time, don't we? Because it means we have to put in less treasure, right? I mean, we'd rather give time sometimes. Now, I know people that are the opposite way. They have no time, so they just give money. But he's really talking about an attitude of the heart, I think, because he's really trying to focus on what do you care about? And he's speaking primarily to his disciples now. And remember, he already gave us the when you give. There's a full assumption that we're going to be giving. So we know that's part of what we're supposed to be doing as disciples. It's clear he's saying you can have your treasure on earth and that will, that's temporary and you can lose it. He's saying in some respects, store up treasure in heaven. We struggle with what does that really mean. Some people believe that's the spiritual kind of thing. Some people believe that might actually be real treasure that he rewards to people in heaven, whatever that is, whether it's material or not, I don't know. Isn't he really just saying, wherever your treasure actually is, whether it's on earth or whether it's in heaven, 
that's where your heart is going to be. He's actually making that dichotomy first to say, so if you've got treasure on earth, your heart's on earth. If you've got treasure in heaven, that's where your heart is. It's going to be in heaven. I agree with that. I'm just jumping one more step beyond that because I think what really applies to us even more is most of us never even consider the treasure in heaven. We just kind of, we're not even sure it's there. We don't think about it much. So we look at our treasure on earth, and then we say, and I think the statement still applies, that now that we're just focusing on earth, whatever we do with our treasure, even on earth, is really where our heart is. And that's, and that's something that I think we, as a church, should be wrestling with. Because a lot of us, you're going to see as he goes on, he's going to start talking about a materialism. That's really where he's driving. Is he's trying to get his disciples to look at life in a non-material sense. Move beyond the materialism that we're so used to. And it's unfair because we're about to go into those verses and I haven't gotten there. That's kind of why maybe it's good that I slow down and just leave it there. Because a lot of us will make the statement that we care about certain things, even with our earthly treasure, and yet I don't think we would have the earthly treasure committed to back it up. Some of us might care deeply, if I asked you on a, just a regular TED, like, do you care deeply about other people getting to know Jesus? We'd be like, yeah, we care deeply. Really? If we care so deeply, wouldn't we be committing our treasure to it? Wouldn't our heart be into that as well? And a lot of times, it's not. Yeah. Um, I have a problem with the story of treasures in heaven kind of part, because he tells us that. But like he also says, like when you give, don't let your left hand know from your right hand. So when we give, we can't be like, oh yeah, I made my treasures in heaven. I got one notch up there. But why? Why well, does he tell us not to know? He tells us not to because he says that, that God knows. But there's a, there's a key connection. He said, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Pray Father in heaven knows. We'll see and we'll reward you. That's one of the verses that leads us to start to believe. Why is it when we give in secret and don't claim that kind of attention in this life, why is that counted as reward to us? What does it mean when God's going to reward us? Is it just going to be a pat on the back? That can't be the standard for salvation, so it's got to be something else. What is that reward that he's going to give us? And that's why some people would say, maybe that's what he's talking about. That's just one verse, okay? There's like many others that people start to lay down on the way to saying, maybe there really is that concept. Right, but should your motivation be getting treasure in heaven? I think if you're driving towards that motivation, that could be counted against you, but, and I know Philip's going to be all over this, but he's also saying, store it up. So there's got to be some, he's saying in some way, there's like that tension again. What you're really saying is, I'm doing this to obey Christ because I know that he will reward me. I don't know that that's the worst motivation in the world, to obey the Lord, hoping that somehow that's going to be counted as righteousness to you or some sort of reward. I don't think that's going to be that bad. I don't think it's the best motivation, but I can think of worse motivations, and, and Jesus actually tells us what the worst motivation is, when you do it so others can see you. This is the easy part of the verse, by the way. <laughs> but you know why this grabs us? is because it has to do with our money. And I think that our souls fight this passage because if we really read it the way I think he meant it, it really touches us in a place we are uncomfortable Because it tells us that if we live this life the way he wanted us to live it, we would live it radically different than we do. Watch what he says next. Here's one of the ones that I think a lot of us have read a number of times, but none of us ever really understood. Still talking about the subject of money, by the way. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? <laughs> what does that mean? I told you when we started reading through the book of Matthew, there's a lot of verses that we've all read that we just kind of like, wait, shh, whatever, just move on. What is Jesus referring to, by the way? Why does he use the eyes? Around this time, people believe that, you've heard this before, like the eyes are the window to the soul, right? He's actually using kind of a twist on that idea, like the eyes are kind of like this thing that let the light in to the body, all right? And they're the things that if they're bad somehow, they would not let light in. So I struggled with this verse too because I read it and I thought, what is he saying? I mean, I understand the eye is the lamp of the body, okay, because the eye lets the, the light in kind of. He's like the window. If the eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Okay, but why is that dropped right into the middle of a discussion about money? What is he really saying? So here's the thing I'll just tell you. These words, good and bad, really are just translated in our Bibles in English in a way that maybe make it difficult for us to understand. The actual Greek word is hapless, or for bad, not hapless. And what it really means, it has, for leaving the, the actual denotation of the word aside, the actual connotation of the word, in one sense, means to have undivided or complete goodness, completeness, and also, at the same time, has another connotation. It's used in other verses to mean generous, or the opposite would be not being stingy. So what does all that mean when you put it together? Jesus is actually making a statement that he's using the word good to simultaneously, only in a double meaning, mean an undivided and generous nature versus kind of a divided and stingy nature. Jesus is saying that depending on the way that you see things, the way that you are, that's how you will be on the inside. Undivided and generous. How? He's about to say these words. Think of the word undivided because he's about to say these words immediately next. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If your eyes are good, generous, undivided, focusing on the thing that's good, which down here he says, God, or if they're unfocused, divided, stingy, grudgingly holding on to your money, you'll probably be serving the other one. It's an odd phrase to drop in, and that's why a lot of us would probably just read it, don't know what it means. I've heard, it's, <laughs> I've heard it said to be a lot of other stuff. But really, if you look at it, this is a whole passage about money. The whole thing. It's a complete thought. And there's like these bookends around it. No one can serve two masters. Yeah. I'm still struggling a little bit with the eye part, how the, what the eye has to do with the money. Like, does that mean like if you see things in a greedy way, that your whole body's greedy? Or like, I don't understand. The way that we see the word I, all right, in our culture is more on how we look at things. What he was really saying was thinking of the eye as the window or to the, 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 the lamp of the body. What he's saying is, like, think of it as the gateway. Like, if, if you on the inside are good and complete and loyal and generous versus 
if your eyes are bad, it causes you to be dark. And the darkness comes from being divided, unloyal, stingy. And he's leading it into this division between good and bad, God and money. Okay? We just, we're going to get tripped up over the word I over and over because we see it as a, so you're saying the way you see things? I'm saying, no, no, he's saying if your eye physically is good, it's going to allow light in. If it's physically defective in some way, it's, it's not going to allow light in. You're going to be dark inside. But it's not going to translate right in terms of how we, because we don't use eye in that way anymore. We use eye to like what we can see. That's why you picked up the blindness thing. But that's our culture reading that into it. What about the last sentence? Then? If the, then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Like, what is the light referring to? What is the darkness referring to? Is it like if the generosity within you is greedy, then you're very greedy? Like, I don't... Yeah, it's an expression. Like if the light that's in you, which he's saying that the lamp is supposed to let in the light, but if the light that's in you is darkness, then how dark must the darkness be? And why is the light darkness? Because your eye is not functioning correctly because you're seeing it through a not generous, stingy, divided, grudging attitude, for lack of a better word. I guess I'll use the word attitude. So if, if you're supposed to have light in you and the thing that lets it in is filtering out so it ends up being darkness, then how dark is the darkness in you? Okay. I think the passage we just went through, by the way, is among the toughest things he ever said. So if you're feeling really heavy right now, it's because I think, I really believe it, it, it wrestles against who we are as beings. He's touching a very sensitive subject for us, and they're just hard words, not just to understand, but to apply. But he ends with this. You can't serve two masters. How many people agree with the statement, you cannot serve two masters? But don't we try every day? That's the thing I think we have to really wrestle with. I think most of us would say, yeah, I think you can't serve two masters. I think most of us agree with that because it's been beaten into us enough. Anyone, by the way, believe that you can serve two masters? It's okay. Anyone? Because I think all of us up here believe we can't serve two masters. But I think the hard part is to believe it right here. Because we do, every single day, try to nonetheless do this. Yeah? Uh, what about all the other sins? Like, if you're not serving money and you're serving something else, you know? Like, you're like, oh, well, you know, it's not about money, but it's about, like, women, or it's about, you know, food, or gluttony, or whatever. And, and Can you serve God and, and women? No, it's not what it's saying. It never said that in Scripture. Well, he doesn't come right out and say it, right, is what you're saying? He's putting his more emphasis on money. Why? Why do you think it is that he's emphasizing money? And there's no other statements like, can't serve God and sin, God and women, God and a car, God, like, why does he say that? Money's where our heart's at. It's exactly right. That's why. Because money has the strongest hold on anything. And look at the words. You cannot serve God and money. The actual word is God and mammon. Anyone know what mammon is? The closest word I want to throw out, maybe it's a little loose, is your stuff. Mammon implied more than money. It implied money and everything that you had that was the equivalent of wealth. It's everything. In other places, mammon is described as like everything, good and bad, everything that you own. You cannot serve God and everything you own. You cannot serve God and your stuff. How many of us believe that? I mean, I know we all believe it in our mind again. How many of us believe it in our heart to the point where we really are willing to do that? 
This is tough for us to do. It gets tougher as you get more stuff, by the way. I know that you've heard this observed number of times that people in other countries who don't have as much stuff as we do in this country have an easier time in, in some ways depending and leaning on God. They have an easier time making time for those things than we do because we're so all-consumed with our stuff. Yeah. Well, my, my problem is, is like it seems to me like it's talking about like don't store up your treasures on earth, basically. That's what we kind of all agreed on with this. What happens about the people that the Lord's blessed on this earth with riches and they have a lot of stuff. So obviously the Lord's blessed them with that. So where does that apply? You know, does it mean that we have to live poorly or does it mean that we can have a lot of stuff, but if it doesn't matter and our heart's not into that or like, where's, where's the line? Good question. What do you guys think the answer to Ryan's question is? Do rich people have to ditch their wealth? No. No, it just depends on where your heart is. Okay. Do you believe that it's harder for rich people to have their heart in the right place? Absolutely. Yes. Why? Because you're able to purchase all those things. You're able to pretty much have whatever you want because you're not limited in that financially. It's easier to just fall into that. Yeah, and, and Jesus is also telling us, I mean, this, I believe this is a universal truth. Maybe some of you disagree. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I believe that it's harder. It's not impossible. But a person who has more and more material stuff has a harder time serving the Lord because that's where their treasure is. Okay? I'm not saying that they can't have treasure and have more of it in heaven or have their heart in the right place, but it begins to become like a weight of gravity, the more stuff you have. Another reason from experience is the more stuff you have, the more time it takes to maintain it. I know that. I mean, I got to live that life. And I've watched my friends live that life. Some of you guys, you guys know that I lived the life of an attorney and I saw how much money you could make. But that wasn't what was so interesting to me. What was interesting to me was the more money you made, the more you spent and the, and the more you had to work to keep it going. That was the amazing part of it. I have friends who, you know, maybe, I don't know, they make five, $600,000 a year and they have no money. And I don't understand how that's possible. <laughs> I mean, I, but I do kind of understand because when I was on that same track, all of my money was gone. But I know where all of it was going. To maintain the stuff, they kept accumulating and you have to maintain it. And then you have to work 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week to maintain it. You know, I mean, it, it, to tell you that a guy makes $600,000 a year that's a good friend of mine and he, he can't stop working and he can't retire because all his stuff would go away. Like, that doesn't sound like, that sounds like a trap. But there is, so it is harder for richer people. I think most of us agree you can't serve God and stuff intellectually, but we all struggle with it emotionally and in our heart every day because if I ask you what you spend your time on, and if I, wrote, if I just said, write down what you do for the next week, every hour, how much of it is going to support stuff versus God? Now, I want to be careful because I don't want to be heard to say that when we do stuff that we're not serving God because Jesus very clearly gives us the parable of the talents where he watches his servants working. He wants to see them invest through their labor and other things to produce a return. But the key is the return is not for them. It's for the kingdom. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, says these words about money. You guys have all heard this one. Like we know that if you said like, you guys probably heard like, what is it? The word love of money is the root of all evil. Okay. 
we truncate it to money is the root of all evil, but that's not what it actually says. The right words are love of money is the root of all evil. Actually, in, verse, in, in chapter 6, it says people who want to get rich fall into temptation with a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I mean, having money is not the only snare because people who want to become rich will be ensnared as well. Money is a snare, period, whether you have it or you don't. That's why I was asking the question, can you be rich and still serve God? Paul answers that question as well in the same chapter that he's just finished telling that the love of money is the root of all evil. He then goes on and says about rich people, starting in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There's never an easy answer in any of this stuff. That's why a lot of you are looking with that face. Because, yes, it is harder for a rich person, I believe, to serve God. It's just harder. And I say that as somebody who got to accumulate wealth. I'm not saying that as somebody who was bitter because I never got to do it. I'm saying that as somebody to you who's a few years ahead of you in life and is trying everything I can to offload the wealth, if possible, to get rid of some of it. Because I found out what a big anchor it was around my neck in trying to serve God because I spend most of my time trying to support it. But that doesn't mean that you tell everybody who's rich just ditch all of your wealth completely. How do you take it from here to here? That's the thing I think we need to struggle with together. How do we do that? How much of your time is spent on the stuff you want to achieve and gain for material possession. I think it goes without saying in this country that material possessions possess us. We always want the next thing. We always need the next thing. I'm not going to preach on that. You guys all know that. It's common sense. We know that that happens to us in this country. We know that most of what we spend our waking time doing is making money to support the things. And it gets worse as time goes on. Buy a house. You'll know what I mean. You'll spend your whole life just trying to make an income just to keep the house. You know, there's so many days I just go, I don't want to do this, you know? Even if, even if it isn't to serve the Lord, even if it's just because I want to go skiing or something, you know? But you can't because you're supporting all the stuff you accumulated. I also know friends who live very simply and don't have all that stuff, and they have a freedom that I don't have, that I'm working to be able to have at some point. So how do you do that? How do you get it from up here down to here? Because... You know, we're good in this group about up here. We're really good at that. We debate it. We understand what it means. Maybe in two or three more hours, we'd understand the whole eye and the lamp and the body thing. Maybe we would get that finally. But the real part, the real meat of this is no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and your stuff. And all of us are trying. I know we say we can't do it because we know that's the right church answer. But we're still trying to do it. And I'm not saying, by the way, that if you go to school and do well and try to get a good career, that that's the wrong path. That's back to the parable of the talents again. You're supposed to be doing those things. You're supposed to be striving to do the best with what God gave you. The question is, who's it for? Him or you? And the way you know is as you start to accumulate all the stuff, you're like, this looks a lot like me compared to what its priorities are. 
You guys ever heard this quote? Everybody know who Jim Elliott is? Anyone know who he is? Jim Elliott is the, one of the missionaries, one of the five missionaries that died in Ecuador trying to reach the unreached Indians. They went down there to try to make contact, and when they finally made contact, they were speared to death. It was the subject of the movie End of the Spear, which I actually just recently saw. This is Jim Elliott's famous quote. This is actually his handwriting, writing in his journal before he was killed. He wrote these words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he was actually reflecting on what it means that if it's true that you can't take it with you like you were talking about earlier, some of you are like, it's temporary, it doesn't go with you. He's saying, you're not a fool if you give up in this life what there's no way you could ever keep because you're going to die and you can't take it with you in order to gain what you can never lose. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that statement said by somebody who believed it to the point where they left everything behind, the comforts of this country, to try to reach out to people, hopefully to bring the gospel to people who ended up basically spearing him and killing him and his friends so that his gain was somewhere else. There was another gain that came as a result of his death. As many of you know, the wives of those five missionaries eventually went down and worked. Well, they were already down there. They started working with the very same Indians who had killed their husbands. And eventually the entire village became among the first unreached Ecuadorian Indians who became Christians. And that's what the subject of the movie and the book is all about. And you could say, well, he never got to see that. But without his sacrifice, that door would have never been opened. It just puts gain and loss in different perspectives. Tonight, I wish I had like a good conclusion to leave on and say like, okay, so this is what this means. What it means is like every single day, we have to live in that tension. I wish I could tell you I was doing a better job so I could model it for you and tell you, here's how you do it. The temptation is going to be as you go on in life, go through school, do whatever you want, is to constantly ask yourself this question. The thing that I'm going after right now, how does that help the kingdom priority? Or is that really for me and what I care about? And that's tough because I'm not saying be a monk, wear a hair shirt, flog yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying move to a monastery and wear the thing with the rope. But I don't think God would be dishonored if you went to that extreme. I'm not suggesting it. But we're at the other extreme. You know, when I'm hanging out at my house, what I'm thinking of is how I could spend 30 or 40 grand landscaping in the backyard. All right? That's the stuff you start to think about, right? You go, oh, I'd really like to have a little waterfall, a little, like, rock wall. What? I mean, there are people in the world who don't know the Lord, who don't have any food to eat, who don't have any medicine, who nobody cares about, and I'm worried about the rock wall. And it's those moments where I don't even have the stuff yet, but what I'm doing is I'm watching my thoughts. I'm trying to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, am I going to take the rock wall with me, you know, and the little waterfall? Is that coming with me? Is that just building another kingdom on earth? Is that building my treasure here? Am I putting my hope here? Is that what I'm doing? And I think that is what I'm doing when I'm dreaming about those things. And some of you I know would say, well, I mean, that's just great that you're thinking about it. You haven't done it yet. Yeah, but even the time I'm taking to think about it, you know, could be spent on something more beneficial to God and his priorities. What are his priorities? What does he care about? I mean, if you guys are going to follow this guy, you should know what he cares. What does he care about? What are his priorities? Worship? Just sing to him? What does he care about? All right, us knowing him. What else does he care about? Orphans and widows. 
What else? Feeding the poor. What else? Clothing the naked. The lost. The incarcerated. The homeless. Yeah. That's who he cares about. He cares about those people, shouldn't we? That's what we should care about. But it's hard to do that when we're distracted, first of all, with our stuff. And that's why you can't serve God and money. Because you'll end up serving one. He says it. You'll end up serving one and hating the other. Do you really hate the other? No. The actual wording is probably better. You'll end up serving the one and ignoring or not loving the other. That's what's going to happen. That's what happens to me every day. I spend so much of my time with my stuff and the possessions and maintaining it and dreaming and building and doing all those great things that I don't love God and his priorities. I don't serve God and his priorities. And I have to confess that because that's a tough thing for me every day to realize that another day has gone by and I'm still really just scratching the surface. Let's leave it there. I know it's messy. You guys are looking at me like this is already too much. Let's just stop there and close it off. Let's pray. Lord, I sometimes imagine that probably the place where the people listening to you tuned out the most was when you started going after their stuff and their lifestyles and their desires for this world and everything that was in it. So Lord, I'm asking tonight that you wrestle with us for this week. Come and wrestle in our hearts. I know that I'm the first, Lord, to devote too much of my time, energy, my money, my resources, all of the talents that you've given me, I've devoted too much of them to priorities that don't match yours, that I'm serving my stuff and not the kingdom, not your kingdom and its priorities. Settle on our hearts, Lord, tonight, your conviction, your truth, your light, shine into us. Illuminate those places in our, li- in our lives, Lord, that maybe live in the darkness where we're hanging on to our stuff or to our desire for stuff where we're not really just serving you, where we're living this life the way that our country tells us to live it. Break open those places, Lord, and shine your true light inside of us. Pray this in your name. Amen.